Hey, Forge family. In podcast number eight, we were together around the epistle of James, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. James, head of the church in Jerusalem and overseer of many congregations scattered abroad, is still writing on the problems caused by the tongue, by speech in the churches. And as a corrective, he taught in these verses about wisdom, the kind of wisdom that church leadership should exhibit. He quickly turned to the problem of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that is gnawing away at his assemblies. And those qualities are rooted in the wisdom from below, earthly, natural, and demonic. See, that stuff of personality competition and, and ambition, that stuff can still be seen in churches today. James steps in with direct correction. He calls us to embrace, pursue, receive, and practice the wisdom from above. It's been given by God the Father. That wisdom is pure and gentle and peaceful, willing to submit, filled with mercy and spiritual fruit. Such wisdom James describes as unshakable and unwavering. Lastly, James pointed to peacemaking, the applying of that wisdom from above and practicing it in church, at home, and in the marketplace, so that wherever we go, we walk in an atmosphere of wisdom and right choices, right relationships, and right values. One of the blogs I read periodically is uh, entitled, uh, Don't Eat This, Eat That. And it's obviously hoping to impress people that they need to make better dietary choices. Well, James has done much the same with your spiritual diet here. Don't eat from the trough of the wisdom from below. Eat what is on the Lord's table, the wisdom from above. Let's pray. Father of lights, from whom the gift of wisdom comes, thank you. We aspire to eat from your table, to fellowship with you and our brothers and sisters, and not get caught up in, in jealous, competitive stuff. So we begin here, Lord, again, with the need for purity and peace. Come, wash us, cleanse us, Lord, from our day. As we come to study more of James's letter, come fill us with your wisdom from above. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, family, get your James text, your notebooks and pens, and settle in. This week, we're in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. This is podcast number 9. Let's read it together. And I honestly, I don't think there's a chapter break here, so let me back up. It says, verse 18, it says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Whoa. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. So you commit murder, and you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He is jealously he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of God and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law and you are, uh, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judges your neighbor? So beginning at verse 1 of chapter 4, now, now, like I said, you need to look over your shoulder. You know, remember we, we were talking about uh, the, the peace that is sown and that you create an atmosphere of righteousness and wham, here comes this rhetorical question he says, what is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? James jumps from that fruit of righteousness, sown in peace, to Greek words for wars and fightings. Now, this may be metaphorical. Or, James may be writing into the miasma of combat, of words or physical blows in his churches. Now, obviously... There were power struggles and backbiting and contention and competition for positions of power. Even murderous anger, which James lays out in the next verses. This mess in the churches was expected out in the world because that's been around since the time of Cain and Abel. He begins with a rhetorical question and then, you know, he says, where do all these battles come from? And then he answers his own question. He says, is it not from your over-the-top, out-of-control, unrestrained desires? The word is hedone, which is the root for our word hedonism. These raging desires for intense pleasure or enjoyment were moving to encompass illicitly desired physical pleasures. And then he says, these desires are in your members. Now, that could be internal, personal struggles, one-on-one -on -one sort of thing with addictive stuff. Or it could be corporate. This could be a church-wide plague. And the lust that James describes may have moved on to headier heights. The battle for power, for control, and for positions of honor. In verse 2, James shocks us. And his readers, charging them with lust that is not fulfilled, so murder is committed. 
Your envy, James says, is equally blocked, so you fight and you quarrel. No, you go right back to verse 1 here. You've got, you got war and you've got fightings. Now, we all know that when we go for it, whatever it is, and we want something, and it is not received, but it's just out of reach, animosity jumps up inside of us, and it snarls. The word here for lust is epithumia. It's a strong, unhealthy craving to get what you do not have. And James says, so, you don't have it, you murder. Whoa, this word is not used figuratively in Scripture. But we need to take into account that James' half-brother, Jesus, taught that hating your brother was the spiritual equivalent of murder. Erasmus, uh, late 1400s uh, in the Netherlands, he was a reformer. Okay? But he was so troubled by James' reference to murder that he wrestled the Greek word phoneno, murder, into another form. He changed two letters, and now he got it to spell envy in Greek. Well, Luther, Calvin, Tyndall, and Moffat, a couple of those are notable translators, they all embraced his work, but he, and ultimately they, messed with the word of God. He changed scripture to deal with his discomfort. The text says murder. Now again, James may have been addressing toxic hatred. Or he may have been addressing a case in a church where a quarrel went postal, you know, with lethal results. And Jesus was not alone in his teaching on anger. John the Apostle wrote nearly the same words, Quote, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, unquote. The actions of King David, desiring Bathsheba, set up a murder-by-battle scenario so her husband, Uriah the Hittite, was placed in the vanguard, in the front, and, he, and that was overrun and he was killed. Now, James is, he just stomps on this. He's not gentle. He's just very direct. And note here, does not call his listeners brothers and sisters. Hmm. He finishes verse 2 with an observation. You, my readers, you do not have because you do not ask. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's he doing? He, he shifted from murder to prayer to what's next here? Well, verse 3 answers that. The next is you're asking, but you have the wrong motives. You pray emphatically. And repeatedly, consistently, constantly. But it's because you want to have your desires met. Okay? You ask so you can squander all those answers from God on your own pleasures. That's the word that James uses, is squander. Somehow, across many assemblies of believers... In synagogues scattered across the Eastern Roman Empire, there was a wave of deep desire for experiences, luxuries, possessions, and power that had swept in. And now, hmm, who could have authored such a plan and empowered it into the churches? Your adversary, the devil, Diabolos. And we're going to talk about him later. 
you know, he's, he's here later in the text. Okay? So realize James, James is recognizing the author behind this chaos. James, he's, he's reading about it, he's hearing about it, and he, and he goes right to the jugular. Verse 4 begins with an Old Testament prophetic challenge where he says, You adulteresses! Isaiah 54, verse 5, and Jeremiah 3.20, both have Yahweh, Lord God, speaking as a husband to nations, to Israel and to Judah, who have gone rogue. They've gone unfaithful. Hence, spiritual adultery. Judah and Israel flaunted their embracing of idols while claiming to be God's people and going through the motions of his worship. James uses this strong indictment saying, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? See, he personifies the entire body of Christ, the whole church, as the bride of Christ, who at best has become seduced by pleasures and things and power, or at worst, they have become unfaithful to the Lord. Their groom. The word of friendship that James uses to describe the relationship with the world, and that's the world's system values and morals, if you will, is philia. Friendship, okay, that's spoken of by this Greek word, in the ancient world was lifelong, covenantal. It took seriously what happened between people who shared values and loyalties. Now here, James's congregations had, as individuals and as corporate entities, they'd embraced fallen, deviant, selfish, demonic values. Alec Macher says, we must not think we can live in intimate fellowship with God when the set of our heart is towards the world. If you choose to do so, if you befriend the values and the morals of the world, you will establish yourself in a position of enmity with God. You become God's enemy. The word for enmity in Greek is extra, and it means hatred. Then James leads out with another rhetorical question to raise the ante above spiritual adultery. Verses 5 and 6 cuts right down to soul and spirit, to joint and marrow. You see, do you think that Scripture is empty? That's a great question. Do you think it's vain? It has no purpose. That it's powerless. Do you think the Word of God is useless? Trust me, family. You don't mess with the Holy Spirit, and you don't dismiss Scripture. In my text... The sentence that follows is in quotes, but we can't find any direct scripture reference that James is quoting, so we don't know his source. Okay, The Greek word order has caused a kerfuffle here amongst translators and interpreters for 2,000 years. So this week, after reading lots of theological reasonings, study, and wrangle, I conclude that the word order in my text is wrong. Let me read it to you the way it came out to you the first time. Okay? 
Back up a page. It says, James chapter 4, verses 5, and it's the second half. It says, He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? Question mark. Well, it's tough to understand the way that's written out, and that's why the argument's there. I think the word order is wrong. And I believe it should say, quote, the Spirit, capital S, which he has made to dwell in us, jealously desires us. See, that presents Holy Spirit as a jealous, passionate lover who longs for our full devotion. To which he responds intensely and exclusively. Holy Spirit is not passive in his people, and he will move with intention to see us changed, to be faithful to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Here is the only reference in the book of James to Holy Spirit, and I think it's precious. The start of verse 6 signals a softening in James' words. The pastor finally breaks out. And he says, but he gives greater grace. J.A. Macher says this. What comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect to our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation, for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. We may play false to the grace of election, contradict the grace of reconciliation, overlook the grace of indwelling, but he gives more grace. Even if we were to turn to him and say, what I've received so far is much less than enough, he would reply, well, you may have more. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. James knows that the Holy Spirit is at work in the assemblies, and they need a way back. And it begins with a word of grace. Now, James quotes Proverbs 3.34 directly from the Greek Septuagint. That's, that's a Greek translation of the, Old Hebrews, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And he says, God is opposed to the proud. Let me pause there. God is opposed to the proud. means God literally comes in battle array with his army to draw near to the proud, to the arrogant, and to the haughty. But for the purpose of, of war. But, the text says, he gives grace to the humble, those who are not reliant on world values or morals, not reliant on themselves, and they're humble enough to ask for God to God, Please give me grace. And they receive it. Hey, Ford's family, just a quick point here. Do you want to 
draw near to God who is in direct opposition to you in battle array? Or do you want him to come near to you to lift you up into an embrace? Whew. Think on that. Hebrew word for that is Selah. Okay? Now, James begins on an explicit remedy to friendship with the world that has disrupted his fellowships. He, he follows with ten imperatives over the next couple of verses. And we may need some of them. Okay, Some of God's people have an A.D. relationship with Christ. In other words, we came to know him. Oh, it's wonderful. We come to know Jesus. But there's still some B.C. patches to life. Okay, There's still stuff that was before Christ that's there. And it lingers or it pops up there. Oop, didn't see that before. Don't remember that. Well, time to deal with it. Now that's exactly what James is saying here. It's deal time. Verse 7 begins, Submit yourself to God. The military word hupotasso is used here. It means to rank yourself under, to voluntarily submit. In this case, it's voluntarily submit to God, which means to order your life under God's authority and will. Next, we're to resist the devil. Back to Diabolos here, okay? And he's the one who keeps hurling stuff in us. That's what his, his name means. Accusations, slanders, lies, doubts, sickness, injury, infirmity. But we're to resist. Okay, We armor up as Paul taught us in Galatians chapter 6. For sometimes we have to stand into the teeth of that. Other times when the temptation is strong, we fight a rear guard action. We get out of there under the direction of Holy Spirit. Not going to deal with that temptation. I'm out of here. Okay? And as we align with God's heart and his life in us, we will grow our resistance to the devil and he will flee away from our presence. Verse 8 continues the command for the road back. Next, draw near to God. Okay, you start with submit yourselves, then you resist the devil, then you draw near to God. Okay, when we move toward the more of God, and James thinks that's practical, okay? He's not going, ooh, mystical. He's practical. He says the more of God means controlling your tongue and caring for the poor and growing on, on into the wisdom and gentleness of the, of, 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 uh, the wisdom from above. When we radically obey, then when we wait on him, he comes. He comes. James moves to an ancient picture of pre-worship washing. Okay, part of the worship system, the cult, if you will, of preparing to go into the tabernacle, into the temple, was you had to wash. And the outward washing of the body pictured, symbolizes the purification that was going on inside. Okay, now, granted, James is addressing his readers here as sinners. And we have been. And we will be. But by the grace of God, purity comes when we ask for forgiveness. So if you find yourself pulled in two directions, gripped, you're either gripping or you're being gripped by some worldly thing or some person, draw near to God 
and ask for his washing, for his restoration, for his cleansing. The antidote for double-mindedness, for dual streaming, and for serving two masters is repentance. Once that comes, you know, once it comes, often it will come with grief, with sorrow, with mourning for our choices, for our sin. When we realize just how far away from God we've drifted or we've run, we are to mourn the arrogance that led us away. Remember the story of the prodigal son where he comes back to his father and says, Lord, uh, Father, I'm not worthy to be to even be treated as one of your lowest servants. Okay? He, he had it right. Okay? He wasn't worthy of it. But, Father steps in. Okay? But we're to mourn the arrogance that led us away. We are back, as it were, but not to just clean up on the outside, on our actions, but we're supposed to, the cleansing is supposed to be internal. To correct our heart, to correct our attitudes, correct our will. You know, so our behavior begins to fall in line with that submission to God. Verse 10 continues that restoration teaching going out to the churches. They and we are to be humble. We're to humble ourselves in the presence of God. It's not for us to compete for positions. We can use our skills, we can use our charisma, we can use our ambitions, but the Lord says, that doesn't cut it in the church. Okay? Not in His church. We're to choose the downward, inward way. Humility, purity, gentleness, and the wisdom from above. To cultivate an inner life in, in, in such a way that there's now a place for the presence of God. Humility is essential for community. It's not passivity. Rather, it is receptivity. James switches back, verse 11, to his, his phrasing to, to call them brothers and sisters, to brethren. He changes his commands. Okay, He charges them and he says, stop speaking against one another. Okay, The word is katalaleo. It means slander. Let me say it louder. Slander. Okay, To loose destructive verbal attacks. To gossip. To make false accusations. To criticize. To malign. To backbite. Now stop right there. Do you remember Diabolos, the devil? That's what he keeps trying to do to us. That's what he's trying to do to the man you're trying to speak down to or speak against. Don't do the enemy's work. Next, James says, don't judge one another. Okay, that's the word crino. And it means don't condemn one another. <laughs> that's, that's more of the devil. That's what he does. James says, when you do so, when you speak against or you judge, you speak and judge against the royal law. Remember? The one that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, you judge that law. You stand above it and you stand outside of it. Dan McCarthy has a great series of things here that I think are worth 
hearing. He says, slander and judgmentalism are close cousins. Many slanderers probably are unaware that they're spreading falsehood. They believe their negative accusations and censorious remarks to be reasonably well-founded, and they may even see themselves as having a special calling to inform the world of someone's evil or to preserve a church purity by excising its less-than-perfect members. To spread accusations or publish unproven allegations is, however, in effect, an act as sentencing judge and without authorization and probably also without adequate information. Slander indirectly imposes censure because the wider community is implicitly being encouraged to ostracize the accused person who may very well be innocent. But the more important issue is that no individual in the community is, at any, is in any position to judge the spiritual condition of another. <sighs> James basically says, got to stop, brothers and sisters, because you, you, you have uh, judged the royal law you said stood apart from it, you stand above it. And when you choose to speak harmfully, you selectively choose which part of that law of love you will obey. George Stulak says there are three, here are three of the most common ways that Christians are critical and out of compliance with that law of love. Number one, they judge others' motives and words or actions in church business. Number two, we judge how others spend their money. And three, we judge how others are raising their children. James says, don't set yourself up as a judge. Because in verse 12, James says, there's only one lawgiver and one judge. When you step in to speak against your neighbor, you're blaspheming God. Who do you think you are? And maybe then you ask the question, what is empowering my speech against this other one? Or rather, who is empowering my speech against this other brother or sister? There's a question for you. Okay, Forge family, James and Holy Spirit do not give up on people. Here is a biblical track laid out for those who find, you know, you'll be out there, you'll meet them. There, you know, in the town that I live in, there are many at one time who had direct contact with the Word of God or with church. They, they, they know a ton of truth, and they fled it. They got away from it. Or they, quote, I once knew the Lord, unquote, and they've, they've moved directly away from that. Now, whether they or you Okay, it is indeed the way back to the Father's embrace. So, what one thing, what one thing in verses 1 to 12 here, James chapter 4, is Holy Spirit stirring up in your heart? Now, you want to stay with that. You want to go with that. And you want to resolve that. Okay? Holy Spirit. We pray now, we, we, we earnestly want you. We know you earnestly long for us. We need you, Holy Spirit. Your love is ever faithful. 
even when we are not. And yet you are proactive and you come get us and you make us long for purity. Thank you, Lord the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge family. I love you. We'll see you soon. God bless.